Welcome to the Bodily Transgressions and Fantastica Media podcast series. We hope you enjoy the series. If you have any questions or comments, we invite you to attend the Digital Symposium, which will take place on 12th November 2022 via Zoom. The event will be free, or drop us a line on our Discord server. Details are in the podcast information or can be found at fantasticajournal.com under CFB's events and news. That's Fantastica with a K. This podcast is part of Panel 7, Island Oppressions, which will take place at 6.15pm GMT time. This podcast is presented by Derek Theus, who is an assistant professor of English at the University of North Georgia. In addition to Relativism, Alternate History, and The Forgetful Reader, which published by Lexington in 2015, he is the author of Embodying Gender and Age in Speculative Fiction, published by Routledge in 2017, and Sport and Monstrosity in Science Fiction, published by Liverpool in 2019. His podcast today is entitled A Technology of Torture Porn, Christian Supremacy, Medieval History, and Revisionism. Hi folks, my name is Derek Thies. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of North Georgia, and my paper is arbitrarily titled A Technology of Torture Porn, Christian Supremacy, Medieval History, and Revisionism. Here goes. In Matthew Gabriel's and David M. Perry's 2021 book, The Bright Ages, their term for the Middle Ages, they emphasize the rich human complexity of people's lives throughout the early Middle Ages and that, quote, out of that complexity, embedded within the stories they told, we find a pathway of new ideas about how to work toward peace, end quote. In review for Slate, medieval historian Eleanor Yanega praises the book precisely for its success in, quote, conveying to audiences the fact that the complexity and subtlety of the Middle Ages allows for fun as well as drama, end quote. In my own, much more negatively reviewed 2015 book, I included the term complexity among contingency and continuity in my argument that in history, quote, popular repetition of a narrative functions as a logomimetic kind of revision, end quote. This argument was actually the pulled punch of a scholar whose PhD had expired and had no prospects for a tenured position in academia, but was still desperately trying. In fact, as several examples in my book showed, academia does not reward arguments that it deems unorthodox, i.e. my suggestion that, This revisionism tended to coincide with religious apologetics. Now, seven years later, I am unfortunately all out of fucks to give as an associate professor about what academia deems orthodox, or civil or professional for that matter. We can have that talk some other time. So I'm gonna state my position much more clearly. The Bright Ages and the praise it has received represents precisely the critical third rail that is the widespread Christian supremacy systematized across academic disciplines, but especially in the humanities. This book's emphasis on brightness, the colorful mosaics and tapestries of the primarily religious figures it focuses on, is precisely a fantastic, counterfactual, and revisionist apologetic meant to obscure the religious and colonial violence of the Middle Ages that even a cursory comparison to other fantastic stories, in this case the Hostel films, would urge us to remember. Okay, I'm not the first to suggest a connection between historical work of this kind, indeed of this very book, and the fantastic. In fact, one of the authors of The Bright Ages, David M. Perry, urged his large Twitter following this last February to nominate the book for a Hugo in the Best Related Work category. Yet neither am I the only one to note that the book signals and supports Christian supremacy. Controversy ensued recently after historian Mary Remberen Olm reported that her review of the book for LA Review was torpedoed, her words, by the editor, a friend of Perry's and Gabriel's, 
in particular because it highlighted the text's centering of a white, European, and Christian worldview. As she wrote in the review she eventually published on her own blog, quote, We can't change our positionality, but the book would have benefited from an acknowledgement that the author readings and interpretations came from their positions as white males. Simply naming women who remained subsidiaries in a patriarchal society or referring to auxiliary figures who were Muslim, Jewish, Mongols, or pagans in order to demonstrate how Christianity developed is nothing less than Christian apologia. End quote. It is also worth, also worth mentioning that the much more positive review that replaced Holmes in the LA Review was written by no other than Eleanor Yanega, who has been very outspoken in her desire to get people to, quote, calm down about the medieval church." End quote. It is difficult not to see this controversy as a coordinated and systemic effort to privilege one historical narrative over another. And yet there are points upon which Ulm, Perry, and Gabriel, and Yanega would agree. As Ulm outlines, there is a, quote, myth of the Dark Ages that in public discourse now, if the term appears, it is met with fervent opposition, often on a personal level from medievalists, myself included, as a reactionary impulse to want to prove that the period is misunderstood and or inaccurately or dangerously romanticized." End quote. In this formulation, the myth is a falsehood that requires correction or busting by the historian. But as my colleagues in folk and fairy tale studies would remind us, this is a simplistic approach to myth that also may reflect Christian imperialism in its denigration of indigenous ways of knowing. Ulm examines Perry's and Gabriel's analysis of Beowulf, for example, concluding that it is demonstrative of their privileging of white feminist discourse and urges inclusion of anti-imperial analyses. Yet Brian Atterbury, in discussing myth, includes this text specifically as one in which, quote, pagan motifs are revisited by the writers with an overlay of Christian judgment. Such texts document the overlap between indigenous oral traditions and imported literary and religious practices." End quote. I would follow Atterbury's detailed study of myth itself and suggest that myth is story, a performative iteration that authorizes belief within a community. Moreover, I assert that Christian supremacy operates in collectivity, not in the individual historian myth-busting, but rather in the repetition of a competing myth. In this case, the repeated emphasis on the complexity of the Middle Ages and the medieval church's contributions to science. Yanega, in her replacement review, actually sums this counter-myth up succinctly as, quote, the medieval era we historians know, a time when Europe thrived despite not yet being aggressively imperial or expansionist, and where the Catholic Church drove extensive scientific and philosophical invention, end quote. This formula certainly is valid in a sense, though it is worth noting that even Ulm, despite calling attention to the Christocentrism of the Bright Ages, objects primarily because the emphasis on Christianity is a kind of coded whiteness, the vast bulk of her review focusing on the race of the authors and subjects of the book. One criticism leveled at my own book was that it did not engage race or gender in a significant way, as though religious violence is not on its own a topic worthy of study. Still, despite calling out Perry and Gabriel for lack of a positionality statement, Ulm does not exactly offer her own. I would suggest that this is only a symptom of a more widespread lacking in the academy at large, largely a failure to reckon with religion as a vector of oppression and more minutely a failure to include adherence to a religious ideology in our acknowledgments of positionality, which one would think would be of particular importance when working with a history of that religion. So I'll do it. 
This paper certainly reflects my own position as a white, cishet male, comfortably middle class, and always hovering somewhere between agnostic and atheist. From that perspective, The Bright Ages is only one recent example of the fantastic revisionist emphasis on the complexity, continuity, and scientific innovation of the Middle Ages. In the introduction, Gabriel and Perry clearly position themselves against the quote, myth of the Dark Ages, which can be a space for seemingly clean and useful myths, useful to people with dangerous intentions, end quote. To this, they contrast their Bright Ages, but again with reference to scientists who, quote, looked to the sky and measured the stars, built the university, laid the foundations for the European contribution to the global scientific revolution, and did so without surrendering their beliefs in a higher power, end quote. This later is supposedly a testament to innovation, but also to the complexity of the people and institutions as well as their continuity with later thought. And this they posit as, quote, a new story of the European Middle Ages, end quote. As Olm responds, however, again, emphasizing the way the authors erase the work of scholars of color, this is well-worn territory. Much has been written on the complexity and continuity from the medieval church to later times, as I outlined in my book and especially in the last few decades in, an, in order to compete for Templeton money. But Olm reads this term literally. I suggest it is not so much a reference to a lack of prior stories, but rather an admission that what the Bright Ages offers is a competing myth, another story, and one that authorizes a belief that Christianity's influence has been a net positive throughout history. This is a story, moreover, that takes form precisely in its own continuity, each chapter of the Bright Ages coming to a similar conclusion. Yes, there was violence, but look at the art! Chapter 1 concludes its emphasis on the beautiful chapel of Gala Placidia in Ravenna, saying, quote, Christians did absolutely smash and murder, but Christians also built places of shimmering starlight, end quote. In Chapter 9, titled The Brilliant Jewels of the Heavenly Jerusalem, we are told that, quote, that's the way of the Bright Ages, even when the brightness comes from the fire of burning buildings amid the screams of a conquered city, we have to work from inside of these all-too-human medieval people, try to see the universe as they saw it." End quote. Sure, the Crusades saw violence, but the jewels! And such continual redirection exists alongside openly positive appreciation of Christian imperialism, such as in Chapter 2, uh, titled The Gleaming Tiles of New Rome in which, quote, Justinian and Theodora exported this brightness westward, seeking to spread their message of imperial Roman and Christian magnificence to the newly reconquered lands, end quote. It may seem that I am cherry-picking statements from random sections of this text, but what I am conveying to you is not controversial. Each of the historians cited above would agree on the core point that the so-called Dark Ages is a myth that needs busting through a greater emphasis on complexity, or as Perry and Gabriel put it in their epilogue, Quote, the truth of all historical periods suffers under the weight of latter-day myths. The particular darkness of the Dark Ages suggests emptiness, a bland, almost limitless space into which we can place our modern preoccupations. But this we cannot abide. Simplistic comparisons to the past do violence, not just to their time, but to ours. The way out of darkness is illumination, the way a mosaic can twinkle in the candlelight or blood can shimmer on the street. End quote. It's worth repeating that none of this emphasis on full, complex human beings is controversial in any way, but I am glad that they brought up violence to the past and invited the comparison to other fantastic media, 
as violence itself is worthy of study. For the sake of space, I may not be able to do justice to the complexity of the Bright Ages, nor to the genre I want to compare it to, torture porn. Made popular by exemplars of the genre such as the Hostel or Saw series, Javier Aldana Reyes defines the genre as a form of contemporary, quote, body gothic that developed in the noughties and rejoiced in the nightmare of inescapable materialism that leaves no room for transcendence, end quote. The films typically show people trapped and imprisoned and then graphically tortured on screen. Thus, the genre put violence at center stage. And another typical, though frequently challenged as too limiting, characterization of the genre is as a reflection and critique of the Bush-era war on terror, use of rendition, and torture. Yet attention already begins to arise between the repeated insistence that, according also to Aaron Kerner, quote, torture porn contains no supernatural elements, end quote, and the genre's relationship with the Bush-era war on terror. Newsweek magazine once praised the W presidency as, quote, the most resolutely faith-based in modern times, end quote. If indeed, torture porn contains no transcendence, is, it, is its absence in such a reflection of contemporary history not itself noteworthy? Such an absence should, in this context, seem like a rather obvious apologetic. Yet the claim of a lack of tr transcendence also falls apart rather quickly. In my current work in progress, I suggest that it is present, merely not in the aggrandizing manner that it is expected. The characters themselves protest religion's absence, as they exclaim Jesus Christ seven times in the first film, eight in the second, some variation of oh my god, eleven times in the first and thirteen times in the second, what the hell three times, one god no, a god damn, a thank god, and one single holy shit. It's not exactly a mosaic or jewels, but as the old adage suggests, there are no atheists in these foxholes. And yet if we insist on a redirection from the violence that some very complex human characters may do in the cause of Christian imperialism, as the Bright Ages urges us to do, then surely the medieval architecture and artifacts of the film will help. Again, for the sake of space, I will not spend considerable time, as I do in the book, on the cloister used as the eponymous hostel in the films, nor on the plague pillar that features in the second film, which was the site of burning not merely plague victims, but witches and heretics as well. How bright those flames must have been. But as Gabriel and Perry and the reviewers pointed out, the church is driving, quote, scientific innovation and laying the foundations for the global scientific revolution. It's worth considering the most scientific artif artifact from that time in the hostile films. As Paxton and Josh search for their friend Ollie, the first to go missing, they chase a man into a torture museum. Before they emerge and the scene cuts away to the bells of the cathedral that towers over the city, the camera lingers on one device in particular, the so-called iron chair. This device, originating in Europe, though used throughout the world in the Middle Ages, is admittedly highly innovative. It is, in fact, an iron chair, but with protruding spikes lining the seat, back, and armrests, designed to puncture the skin of the victim. Straps were attached for interrogation that could be tightened, driving the spikes deeper into the flesh. And several models featured an opening in the seat below which fire could be introduced to increase the pain. The real innovation here, however, is the psychological impact. This device would not kill while it was being used. The warmth of that bright flame and the sharpness of the spikes with the tight compression of the straps would ensure that blood loss was kept to a minimum and the victim would remain alive until removed. How brightly that chair must have glowed. It may seem like a small detail of the film, but consider that each of the victims of the two films, save one, 
is strapped into a chair in a similar manner. The one exception being an elaborate Elizabeth Bathory-style killing, which it's also worth remembering Bathory was, in addition to killing several women, accused of witchcraft and pagan practice. But even more importantly, this resonance of the medieval torture device with the film's torture might also resonate with the debates at the time surrounding the Bush administration's use of waterboarding, an Inquisition-era technique. However, the fundamental difference that I'm driving at between an historical treatment such as Gabriel's and Perry's and the fictional fantastic premise of torture porn is that the latter emphasizes the material experience of the victims of torture. The Bright Ages, on the other hand, expressly avoids this perspective in the name of myth-busting, ironically creating its own legendary figures and privileging the very Christian imperialists who, if they did not personally strap people to that iron chair, likely gave the orders. Nor, once again, is its approach controversial or outside the norms of historical treatments of the Middle Ages. Thus, my point is ultimately not to single this one book or critic out, but to point to their averageness, their ubiquity, as, a symbolic, as symbolic of a larger, systemic Christian supremacy within the academy at large. Wrapping up. And I don't really expect much will change. I doubt anybody will be giving back their Templeton money or refusing the book contract to write a, quote, new story of the Middle Ages. I don't even expect people will begin to include religious adherence among their statements of positionality. I do fully expect scholars to continue thanking Jesus in their acknowledgement sections and dismissing criticism of Christian imperialism as unbelievable or not engaging enough with race and gender. But hopefully, some will acknowledge that transgressing bodies in the form of torture is not worth was never worth transcending bodies, especially not for a fucking mosaic. Thanks.